Salutations, everybody. This is John Kyalaw coming to you today with episode 22 of the Dark Matter Myth Podcast. This one here is called The Forever Forward and Everlasting Distortion. Thanks for tuning in. This episode is very different in the sense that I'll be talking about a very powerful tool I've been using in my life to refine it. I've grown very attached to this tool um, and like many things that I love and have grown attached to, I really don't like to talk about or publicize it. But if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? To further that thought, it seems as if one isn't posting everything they enjoy doing on their social media. Some may argue that They're wasting their time with it and probably shouldn't be doing it in the first place. But nonetheless, here I am, uh, six years deep into my practice, my spirit reinvigorated, and I am stronger and healthier than I ever have been. Unlike most people, I didn't start my practice as a child. I didn't start as a teenager. Instead, I started my practice as a 31-year-old adult, specifically joining with the purpose of not only finding proficiency, but really looking for the missing piece that would be the catalyst in evolving my mind, body, and spirit. Another interesting fact about myself is that I'm usually one of the smaller guys in a room. So I've competed in the 130s and the 140s and typically walk around, if I'm really heavy, around 150. So I'm not big at all and I spent plenty of time, I spent many years just getting smashed all over the place. Now don't get me wrong, I um, still get smashed, but just not as bad. But nonetheless, for about two years into my practice, I was really getting smashed by everybody and practically every class I would go to, I would show up frightened in fear of getting hurt. Because in conjunction with my training, I was working a full-time job and doing plenty of overtime hours. So my body was taking a lot of punishment. And it still is. I'm still working overtime. I'm still working full time and I'm still training. However, after the many years of forging my body into a weapon, I was able to find a, a, uh, a balance and uh, preventative training and just maintaining uh, a certain level of fitness that uh, helped me offset some of these other injuries. But I don't want to make this episode about me whatsoever. What I wanted to do was um, sort of follow the history of jujitsu a bit and sort of make a point that I haven't heard anyone make when it comes to speaking on the art. So about 600 years ago in Japan, the samurai would use a hand-to-hand method of combat for warfare that would go by the name of jujitsu. And this particular martial art would be used for about 400 years in Japan. 
and when it began, it began under the guise of being the martial art of the warrior class. However, with time, it would be distorted into something that wasn't deemed worthy of teaching. As the samurai were disbanded and as jujitsu became the strong arm tactics that thugs of the underworld began to use, its practice became a bit ostracized. At this time in Japan, many of the jujitsu professionals had to pursue alternative careers. Eventually, by the late 1800s, there would be a practitioner named Jigoro Kano. And Kano was hard pressed to find a jujitsu teacher. But when he did, and he began his practice of jujitsu, he filtered out many of the techniques that made it very unpalatable and unsavory for everyday society in Japan. His distortion of jujitsu would be mainly focused around throws, pins, and joint locks, and wouldn't focus too much on the kill. And this particular distortion would be named judo. Judo became highly respected around the world and became the first Japanese martial art to be included in the Olympic Games. Stepping into the early 1900s, there would be a judo player, a judoka, named Mitsuyo Maeda. Maeda was a Japanese migrant who at the time in the early 1900s would be living in the South American country of Brazil. While in Brazil, he would take up tutelage and begin teaching a number of people. And in 1917, one of them was a 14-year-old boy named Carlos Gracie. By the time Carlos Gracie was 17 years old, he began passing his teachings to his other brothers. The teachings would focus on the ground aspect of Maeda's judo and the manifestation of their distortion of Maeda's judo would grow into something we know as Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. While focusing in on the Gracie camp, there will be several other distortions that take place. There would be a camp called Gracie Bara, where it is said that the emphasis lies within sports jujitsu. And there's another camp called Gracie Humaita, where the emphasis of the jujitsu was based on self-defense. Also coming out of the Gracie line were the Machado brothers. They spent much time training and developing their jujitsu together, and one particular Machado brother went by the name of John Jock. John Jock Machado was born with a deformed left hand, and because of this, his jujitsu differed from most other people in a very obvious way. Because he couldn't efficiently grasp the gi of his opponent, John Jock Machado relied on overhooks and underhooks in order to control his opponent and get to his submissions. Through his own distortions of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, he was able to influence a particular student of his. This student would be named Eddie Bravo, and Eddie Bravo would be among the loudest proponents of no longer training with the gi on. Because of Eddie Bravo's distortion of John Jock Machado's jujitsu, much calamity ensued. As Eddie Bravo argued that he was just trying to propel jujitsu forward and make it more applicable for mixed martial arts, 
there were many people who took offense at Eddie Bravo's distortion of jujitsu and labeled him a traitor. There were also other people who took great inspiration from Eddie Bravo's distortion of John Jock Machado's jujitsu and found themselves to be world champions in mixed martial arts. Nonetheless, through this distortion, Eddie Bravo would open the first no-gi jiu-jitsu academies. Through his distortion, many people began training without gis on. And there would be a distortion of the rule sets alongside a distortion of the types of tournaments that took place. The submission-only category of tournament that took place led to a distortion of the training that would breed a different type of athletic regimen we weren't used to seeing. Nonetheless, while the physical aspects and requirements would become much more distorted, so would the coaching, as the game would become much more cerebral than anything else. Moving forward, a greater infusion of wrestling would contribute to the growth of this art, and some practitioners would begin to refer to what was formerly known as BJJ, they would now call it American Jiu-Jitsu. This would be one of the most recent distortions to date. Nonetheless, when it comes to supremacy, American Jiu-Jitsu and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu were still grappling for the number one spot with another distortion of Jigoro Kano's Jiu-Jitsu to which he would distort in something he called Judo which would come out of the Soviet Union. Vasily Oschekpov was a black belt in judo directly under Jigoro Kano. Together with Viktor Spiridonov, they worked on behalf of the USSR to develop a new type of hand-to-hand combat. This hand-to-hand combat would be known as Sambo. Sambo would focus heavily on wrestling, joint locks, and pins. While other distortions and interpretations of Jigoro Kano's judo would sway heavily against performing leg locks, Sambo has regularly incorporated leg locks into the curriculum. Sambo and its particular distortion as a whole has continuously proved its effectiveness on the world stage. Its infusion of wrestling and usage of offensive-minded tactics, most notably performed by martial artists and athletes like Khabib Nurmagomedov and Islam Makachev, has cemented the application and legacy of Sambo on the world stage. In between it all, during the same times, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu would be developing alongside Sambo on the other side of the world. There would be other disciplines that emerge by distorting traditional Japanese martial arts and developing them into their own programs. The most notable among them all being, perhaps, Krav Maga. I lay forth this information to demonstrate one idea. 
and this is an idea I tackle on the prior episodes. Once an individual or an observer is privileged to information, they will have a one-of-a-kind interpretation of that information. Their one-of-a-kind perspective of that information will be known as a distortion. Each distortion of a piece of information will only become further fragmented as the information is passed down. The viability of each fragmentation will be dependent on its ability to sway against a tide of uniformity. So applying this concept to something like jujitsu, we can understand that the effectiveness of a particular strain, a particular distortion of jujitsu, will be determined by not only its practicability, but the imaginations of the people who practice it. But the only way to achieve its peak in the imaginations of the people who practice it, it will have to undergo a process of filtration and distortion before it reaches its ultimate potential. As of today, I look at some of the weird and wacky distortions that have taken place with the art. And, you know, they come in a form of phone booth jujitsu and car jujitsu and obstacle course jujitsu and team jujitsu and and perhaps the most wacky that group MMA stuff that you might see out of Russia and I look at the way these particular distortions are expressed and I think well this isn't traditional in any sense I bring that concept up because a lot of what we're taught is to remain traditional within the arts But at the same time, sticking to tradition can also bring a bit of stagnation. And in contrast, I would argue that considering some of the information I went over toward the beginning of this podcast, it is in fact within tradition to expand and step outside of tradition. Because of the many distortions of tradition we've had around the world... Russia, Japan, the United States, Brazil. The particular scene of jiu-jitsu looks a certain way. Or rather, the particular scene of martial arts looks a certain way. And that is a way that is focused on the effectiveness and efficiency of whichever system is being practiced. Many of these distortions were not welcome. And many are continuously looked down upon. Now, while this may be so, it is my firm belief that it is within our duty as interpreters to whichever art we may observe to contribute our own personal distortions in order to add to the fruitfulness under the tree in which we all practice. So that'd be it for today, guys. I didn't want to hold you up, you know, after the last couple of podcasts in which I really laid um, a lot down on the table. I didn't have much to talk about, (laughs) but um, I wanted to kind of take some of those concepts that we spoke about and apply it to this. And, 
you know, this is something I do. And, you know, I'm not the greatest, but I'm on the court. So, uh, nonetheless, this is John Kyle Law signing off with a unique interpretation, a unique distortion of ideas and circumstance that I hope uh, you were able to take something away from. So that'll be it, guys. This is, you know, not going to be an overly processed episode. And that's it. You know, add another one to the books. I guess I'll add a couple of things on my um, Instagram page if you're interested. And, um, you know, just check them out. That's uh, discipline.fitness.development. And that's uh, the page I'll be doing my martial arts stuff from, my BJJ stuff. And my other page in which I do my my media is uh, jr.media.comics. So if you see me, give me a like. I don't know. You know, you know how it works, guys. So, uh, all right, peace and much love.